This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Adam Grant. I'm here with Ariana Huffington, author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Thrive. Ariana, welcome. Thank you, Adam. Great to be with you. Talk to me about how you came to this idea. You've obviously been running the Huffington Post for quite a while. What, what made you think about redefining success? Well, it was actually a rude awakening, a personal wake-up call seven years ago when I collapsed from exhaustion, burnout, sleep deprivation, and broke my cheekbone on the way down, got four stitches on my right eye, and it started me on this journey of asking myself the big questions that we stop asking ourselves when we leave college, like what is a good life, what is success? And I realized, especially when I looked around at um, colleagues and friends and the world at large, that we had shrunk the definition of success down to two metrics, money and power, and that we'd left out what I now call the third metric, which includes our well-being, our wisdom, our capacity to wonder and bring joy into our lives, and our capacity to give. And without these four pillars, life is really reduced to our to-do list, and we continue to neglect uh, our own selves and our own health and well-being. How has writing the book and thinking more about well-being, wisdom, wonder, giving affected your own life? You know, it's been, it's been really an incredible gift because I feel that, you know how they say you teach what you need to learn? I feel that because I've kind of delved into these ideas, into the science behind the importance of sleep and slowing down and... Uh, how these things are connected with our creativity and productivity because I've delved into all the details. I have kind of begun to incorporate them in my life much more than I would have done otherwise. And as I'm on book tour and I keep speaking about them, I feel that I'm also reminding myself every day. So I'm very blessed that that this book, which uh, I was not intending to write, you know, Adam, you and I share a fabulous literary agent, Richard Pine, and I had told Richard that I will never write another book. This is my 14th book. It's a surprise baby I never thought I was going to have, but it has been very different, and it has been very strengthening of my own commitment to live my life differently. What are the biggest changes that you've made to your daily habits and practices? So, um, The biggest first change that I made was sleep. And at the end of each section of the book, I have three little baby steps that I recommend, and they mirror very much the baby steps that I took. The first one was I began taking, getting 30 minutes more sleep a night than I was getting before, until gradually I got from four to five hours, which is what I was getting before I collapsed, to seven to eight hours, which is what I'm getting now. And the result has been transformational, and all the science now um, demonstrates unequivocally that uh, when we actually get enough sleep, uh, everything is better. Um, Our health is better. Our um, mental capacity and clarity are better. 
um, our joy um, at life and our ability to live life without reacting at every bad thing that happens. And in everybody's life, there are things that happen every day that we wish had not happened. So how we react to them very much determines the quality of our life. Um, then I introduced, I mean, I, I used to meditate on and off uh, ever since I was 13 years old, but I actually introduced a daily practice, which started by being five minutes, and it's now at least half an hour. Uh, but I got to half an hour again, gradually, by, by experiencing the rewards of those five minutes. And in the book, I've included, you know, meditation steps that people can take, as well as, believe it or not, apps that they can use to help them get started. Um, then some form of movement, um, yoga, exercise, even when I'm traveling, you know, in my hotel room, just 10 minutes, the importance of that, the importance of not getting stuck, especially those of us who have jobs that you could spend your whole life doing from your desk. And um, then giving in small daily ways has been really important. Leaving aside, you know, what we give to charity or volunteering time, just one of the first steps I recommend and I practice myself is to make personal connections with people that otherwise we might take for granted, you know, the checkout clerk, the barista in the coffee shop, the cleaning crew, and the difference it makes when we actually connect with people on an individual level and how present it makes us be. So these are obviously individual changes, but you've also been rethinking a little bit of how you run the Huffington Post in light of this perspective. I know you've, you've introduced two nap pods. Are there other changes that you've been especially passionate about? Yes, we, we introduced two nap rooms, meditation classes, yoga classes, breathing classes, healthy free snacks. But one of the recent changes we made that has been very significant has been making it clear that no employee is expected to be on work email after hours. So that when they're off, they're off. I mean, we're a 24-7 media operation, so there are always people on, but not the same people. And people just tell us every day what a difference it's made, how they can really undistracted be with themselves, their families, their loved ones, and, uh, and return to work recharged. Because, you know, we don't pay people for their stamina. We pay them for their judgment. And increasingly, uh, for their ideas, their creativity, this is what's the lightning in the bottle. Well, you, so you mentioned judgment, which is a, a big part of your pillar of wisdom. What are the, some of the steps that you're recommending to become wiser? So, well, first of all, starting with the, the, the recognition that we all have wisdom in us, that it's not something that we have to get from books or cram into us, it's already there. Uh, every religion, um, every philosopher, you know, talks about that in different language. You know, it's basically the kingdom of God is within. Um, Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and I can move the world. So when we tap into that center of wisdom, strength, peace, that's where our capacity for wise decisions, uh, for tapping into our intuition comes from. 
And it's like a muscle. The more we visit that part of ourselves, the more we exercise that muscle, and the more likely we are to be able to tap into it again and again with ease. That's one of the <laughs> one of the things I enjoyed most in reading the book was uh, your personal narrative as really, I guess, on a journey to try to figure out how you can take these ideas seriously and implement them. And I know that your family played a very big role in that. Um, what, what effect did your mother have on your thinking about Thrive? Well, my mother had the biggest impact because she naturally lived a third metric life. She naturally sort of thrived um, long before I had incorporated these ideas in my life. Um, she constantly would tell my sister Agape and me, don't miss the moment. Um, she, she was very clear that that's how you really were fully alive. And that's why she abhorred multitasking long before modern science has confirmed that multitasking does not really exist. It's really task switching, and it's the most stressful thing we can do. And uh, she also, she would have loved you, Adam, because she was a natural giver. And um, I remember once when uh, a lady admired a necklace she was wearing, and my mother said, here, take it. And the lady, surprised, said, what can I give you in return? And my mother said, it's not a trade, darling. It's an offering. And uh, she also could not have an impersonal relationship with anyone. Um, she really connected with people. And um, if the FedEx man would come to deliver a packet, my mother would say, oh, come sit down. I just baked something. And so she lived in that sense of, of being fully connected with people in a deeper way than, than we are, which most of the time is pretty shallow, and often uh, our connection to human beings takes second place to our connection to our smartphones. And this is something that you've not just been hearing is influential on the family side, but also professionally. CEOs are, are making lifestyle changes. What are some of the biggest surprises that you've come across? Well, yes, 2013 was an amazing year because we had CEOs, one after another, coming out, not as being gay, but as being meditators. Uh, Ray Dalio, the CEO of Bridgewater, Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna, et cetera, et cetera. So suddenly, um, what was regarded as kind of new agey, flaky Californian has gone mainstream. And people see the value of um, quiet time, reflection, connecting with ourselves, the value that they derive when it comes to their professional success and their accomplishments. So these things are not separated. We used to think that there was a trade-off, that you had to sacrifice um, your professional success in order to achieve inner peace. And now we see no, not at all. And the science is so conclusive. I mean, I love this time we're living in because it's the first time that modern science has so validated ancient wisdom in every respect, including giving. You know, modern science has really validated everything that um, philosophers and spiritual teachers have said about how uh, giving is a shortcut to happiness. Well, now we have the data to prove it. Well, that, that raises a question that, that I wondered about when I read the book, which is we have these money and power metrics, which are the old way of thinking about success. You bring in well-being, wisdom, wonder, and giving. 
Where does accomplishment fit as just a, an intrinsic sense of progress or achievement in, in your view of, of success? Well, I think actually that the first two metrics, when defined in a, in a profound way, are about accomplishment. And um, it can be accomplishment that also brings a lot of money in or influence, or it can be accomplishment that gives a lot of inner satisfaction. Um, so this, the book is not against money and influence and whatever power really means in the modern world. Um, it's against shrinking ourselves to defining our lives and our purpose in terms of these two metrics. It's a question of what is in the foreground and what is in the background of our lives. And often when people step off a career ladder because they were going to burn out or they had already burned out, they don't give up accomplishment. Um, I, I quote actually a, a Wharton graduate who burnt out after she had her first ba baby on her corporate job and left, but went on to found a kindergarten, co-found a synagogue, uh, create a mom site. So in the same way, if you go to Etsy.com, there are a lot of people who've taken what they love, their crafts, their hobbies, and turned them into a living. So we need to sort of think accomplishment in a, in a wider sense than just beginning our career here and climbing up the ladder until we get to the corner office or SVP position or whatever it is that we determine is the ultimate. Well, one note to close on, I think, at the very top of that ladder, one of my favorite parts of the book was when you talk about eulogies and what's not in them. Enlighten us. <laughs> um, yes, because I, I write a lot about death in the book, not in a morbid way, but because it's hard to really... Um, prioritize what um, you spend time on and what your life is about if you forget that we die. And I quote the Onion headline that death rate holds steady at 100%. So uh, um, I write how um, I, I was at a friend's memorial and listening to the eulogy while writing the book, it dawned on me that our eulogies have really nothing to do with our LinkedIn profiles. And that, uh, in fact, our eulogies are about all the other things. You never hear uh, in a eulogy, you know, George was amazing, he increased market share by one-third, or he made SVP at 35. It's all about how, how we made people feel. Um, small kindnesses, lifelong passions, what made us laugh. It's all the things that when we get really, really busy with our goals, um, we squeeze out of life. You know what they call the exhaustion funnel? When little by little, all the things that nurture us, that feed our soul, are eliminated because we are so driven to achieve whatever that goal is. And of course, as soon as we reach it, it will not be significant until we reach the next goal. And so it becomes this endless postponement of being fully present and fully alive. Thank you. Thank you so much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.
www.edu.edu.